You know, I biked 41 out of 45 days and I went nearly 5,000 miles. So if you do the math, it's like 120 miles a day, like solo, hardcore, ridiculous, right? But I, along that ride, I realized that I didn't need to grieve my sister. What I needed to do was grieve the thought that was in my head. For some reason, I hadn't come out until that ride that I, I didn't just lose my sister. I lost the only person that knew me as a kid. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Welcome to the episode today. We have David Richmond. David is an entrepreneur, an author, public speaker, athlete, and philanthropist. And uh, David Richmond just uh, wrote a new book called Cycles of Life. And his uh, other book was called Winning in the Middle of the Pack. Today, we'll be mainly talking about cycles of life, which I'm really excited to listen to because it's about 15 stories of people that were either caretakers or family members of people that were dying and their journeys. So it's like a compilation, kind of like taking these podcast episodes and writing a book, which you're giving me that idea. Uh, so Boy. thank you, David, for hopping on. No, totally, Kendra. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you are here. So Tell us a little bit about you. I, we were starting to chat and then I'm like, wait, let's press record. So uh, <laughs> you live in Nevada. That part I got. And I, I tell do. us more. So, yeah, my wife and I moved to Nevada uh, when the pandemic started. We, we were living in San Diego, um, but we had lived in L.A. most of our lives. And um, I, uh, we met uh, just like six or eight years ago, but, um, I have twins, um, they're 23 now, which seems ridiculous because, um, you have kids, you know, it's like, you mm -hmm. see them as a certain age. I see my kids as like five, right? And maybe yeah. I don't treat them like they're five, but I see them as five. So to say they're 23 is ridiculous, but, um, yeah, so we live in Nevada. My kids are often completing their master's programs and trying to make their way in the world. And, um, yeah, they're, they're a big part of my story for sure. Just, I'm sure anybody who has kids, man, it's, it's, it's a real joy. Oh yeah. No, they, they definitely are a joy and it, they're, they help us learn so much about ourselves, right? They're, I think yeah. they've been, my children have been one of my biggest teachers for sure. Uh, I've learned so much about myself and about life, just being a mother. So it's a, yeah. a big, fact, a big, were, big treat. Yeah, they were there when the inspiration for the second book came along because um, it was, it's kind of shocking. I don't tell this story very often, but um, just to give you a little like quick background, when uh, my sister was going through brain cancer, 
um, near the end of her journey, she was wanting to be part of this uh, American Cancer Society Relay for Life, where you know you people are out there for 24 hours and they're walking around a track and supporting the team and you know uh, uh, either supporting survivors or remembering people that had deceased and raising money and that kind of stuff. It's a really good program. It's all over the country. I'm sure your listeners know. So I I made a deal with my my uh, sister. Since she was so sick and she wanted to be there the whole 24 hours, I said, if you're going to be there the whole 24 hours, then I'm going to be on the track for the whole 24 hours. So I'm going to run the whole 24 hours. Um, my kids were nine at the time, um, and they wanted to join me and be out there for the whole 24 hours too. Unfortunately, June died like two days before the event, so she couldn't be there to watch. But me and the kids were there and a bunch of other friends and family members and stuff like that. But there was one... Point. And I noticed throughout the day that people were kind of really good about talking about like the tasks of cancer, you know, like how do I get back and forth to chemo? When's my next PET scan? You know, how do I navigate work? Those kind of things. But when it came to the emotional stuff, they didn't talk. So when you said how much you learned from your kids, it was a really touching moment. Um, there's a remembrance lap that goes on at, at the nighttime and people light uh, candles inside of little bags that they write a note on and you walk around the track and everybody's very like silent and into their own little thing or whatever. And the kids were walking ahead of me and I see all of a sudden this woman on the side of the track and there's a couple of bags that have caught on fire from the, from the candles. And she's trying to put them out and she's bawling her eyes out. And I, step, I kind of sit back because my, my both kids walk up to her. They're only nine, okay? They walk up to her and they start talking to her and blah, 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 blah. And then I walk up and I say, what's happening? And she said, oh, my God, your kids are so sweet. She said, um, I lost both my parents to cancer this year. And these notes now burned up and I, you know, and it's, it's really affecting me. And I said, well, I'm sure, you know, the things have burned up, so don't worry about it, but it's the thought and the note and the whatever. And, and my son looks at me and he goes, Hey, is it okay if we walk with her? And I thought, Oh my gosh, like, like how sweet, right? How sweet and caring kids could be. And I definitely learned. And I thought to myself, you know, here was this, a woman who was going through this just like emotional craziness where most people weren't able to talk about the emotion and she could relate to these two nine-year-olds that wanted to hold a stranger's hand and walk her around the track because she was so emotional about her parents and so very moving yeah. scene when I think about it you know it's, it's really gets me going but um, uh, it's kind of like the one of the sparks for the project was because it's so difficult for people to talk about the emotional side of it mm -hmm. um, that uh, that I wanted to do this project. So long story about no, kids. No, I love it. And how much we I can love learn it. from them. But yeah, yeah, their empathy right there, and you know the fact of of uh, you couldn't really fix what she was feeling, right? They couldn't fix what how she was feeling, but just the being by her side and walking by her side was mm -hmm. enough to show that support. And so many times, just like how you said, we, so, we get so uh, focused on the tasks around caretaking, you know, of somebody that's passing or even after somebody's passed away, sometimes we don't even know what to do. And then just the, just being there sometimes mm -hmm. is enough. 
Um, so thank you. Now, uh, after your sister, June, you mentioned was her mm -hmm. name, mm -hmm. June passed away. Um, uh, and you did then that 24 hour, uh, walk, run yeah. combination of everything, 24 hours on the track. Uh, what then inspired you to, uh, start researching about these stories? What was the, uh, the catalyst for that, aside from her passing. Right. So it, it was a combination of things. I think I was a little perplexed as to why uh, people self-isolate when they're going through things or why people abandon, not willingly, but like they're not like, oh, because you're going through something difficult, I'm going to disappear. They don't, but they don't know any better. Like, mm. like they... You know, they kind of like, I don't want to be in your space and I don't want to say the wrong thing and I don't want to make you feel guilty. And it's just, it's easier sometimes to just not pay attention to the person going through the thing because you don't know what to say or what to do, right? I mean, how are you going to brag about how good your life is when you're talking to somebody who might be dying, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's this really difficult thing. And so I noticed that over a couple of year period where I was doing these events to raise money for the cancer center that took care of June. And as I'm not interacting with her family because they don't have the emotional ability to interact with, 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 you know, with me and others about her death. And I'm wondering why is this so common? So I start talking to people and I realize that it doesn't matter who I'm talking, talking to, if it's a, a caregiver, a doctor, um, a survivor, somebody who was a kid who's, whose parent went through cancer, a parent whose kid went through cancer. You know, I, I just, everybody I ran into said the same thing. When it comes to the emotional side, it's very, very difficult for us to relate, for us to understand what language to use, what what's a safe place to go to, what are they going through, what did they go through? I, I don't want to get involved and I don't know how to talk about it, uh, right? There was just so much angst over that whole part of it. And so that was my idea to say, let me try. So I don't know about you, Kendra. You, you read a lot of books. You talk to a lot of people, okay? Yes. I'm not inspired by one person's story. It's hard for me to identify with them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's kind of cool to hear one person's crazy story. But if I'm trying to solve a problem or uh, be better at business or whatever, I don't like one person prescribing to me what to do or preaching to me on what to do. What I love to do is to hear stories from a lot of people and then take a little nugget here, take a little nugget there, take a little nugget there. That's what I do. Hence right. what I do. <laughs> That's what you do. So I, I said to myself, um, I go, what if I grabbed a ton of different people, all different ages, all different types of cancer, all different types of emotions, because people have a million different emotions related to cancer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, one, one and done with cancer, just a fear of cancer, a, a, a doctor who's dealt with cancer their whole life. Let me get a whole wide range of people. And then what I said was their cancer experience is a, is a to today, point B, A to B. Okay. So if you were at point A might've been, you were an eighth grader who went on a field trip to a hospital, walked through the oncology unit and was fascinated by it and said, Oh, I'm going to become a cancer doctor. Okay. That was mm -hmm. point A. Or point A was um, you found out your mom uh, got pancreatic cancer and you're like, holy crap, cancer's in my life. That's point A. Mm -hmm. Point B is today. So what was the emotional journey from point A to point B in relation 
to all the traumas that took place before point A. Suicide, abandonment, abuse, um, making bad decisions, um, having uh, bad relationships, um, uh, uh, having a good childhood, having a bad childhood, whatever. All the dynamics that made you who you are mm -hmm. that I feel like we could all relate to. Then let me see how those affected your emotional journey and your ability or inability to process the emotional side. And if I thought if I could get a wide range of people, you know, I got this cycle of lies. It's a wheel with a bunch of different, like, you know, colors and perspectives in the wheel. If I could fill in all the little blanks on those wheels and provide enough perspective and tell these really amazing, inspirational, moving stories about real people that we could identify with and then understand what they had gone through on the emotional side, then maybe perhaps I could better relate to people. And, and, and so, you know, when somebody says, oh, no, I'm fine. I don't need help. Really, are they saying that? Mm -hmm. is, is that an excuse mm -hmm. for them to go self-isolate or is, are they giving you an excuse mm -hmm. to not offer walk, yeah. help? Right. So a way out, a way out. A way like out the, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. I wanted to go a little bit deeper because it was that over and over thing of um, how do we, how do we equip people to have the better conversations? That is amazing because that is exactly why I interview people on the podcast is the, what are these things that people have in common that's gotten them from that point A to point B? Like, what was that journey? What yes. has helped them in that grief journey and so forth? Uh, so I am just as curious as you. And that's the reason I love talking to people right. <laughs> you know, to find out these stories. Now, did you find out any commonality then any things that you realized? Okay. This is the reason mm -hmm. that, you know, what's the common trait in these 15 stories? And you probably, maybe, I don't know if you talked to more and just picked 15. I did. You did. Okay. So in the stories that you gathered, what was something that was a common thread? Uh, well, if, two, or certain points. Yeah. Two points that was common to every single person. And then one that was a secondary Point. So the two things that were common with everybody. Okay. So what I wanted, obviously, was I wanted interesting, evocative, uh, inspirational, kind of like um, extreme stories, right? Only because I, th I think it's easier to identify with, with that. I couldn't get too subtle because I'm only going 20 to 30 pages per person. So, you know, it's got to be pretty stark. So um, no matter how crazy, ridiculous, amazing insane their lives were one thing that was common with every single person they go ah my story's not that interesting i don't i don't know right so it's amazing like i talked to this one woman who not only did she have five different cancers over a 35 year period right you name it every type of cancer you could ever imagine like basically she said to the doctor what, whatever cancer comes next, just cut it, cut out whichever you need to cut out. And her oncologist said, there's nothing left to cut out. Wow. Right. There's wow. not, there's, there's nothing left to cut. We've cut everything out. Right. But her story's not about that. Her story is about, she spent four years in a ridiculously abusive relationship. She had to change her identity. She had to escape. She was sent to the hospital, all of these crazy things. And when I first talked to her, she's like, yeah, I mean, my story's not that interesting. And I'm like, what? So that was one thing, 
Everybody thought their story wasn't that interesting, and I, 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 I don't know why that is, but um, I can identify with that for mm-hmm. sure. The second thing is, without a doubt, every single person had that overriding factor. They either processed the emotions and hadn't talked to anybody about it, or they hadn't processed the emotions and obviously hadn't talked to anybody about it. So even a 40-year oncologist, uh, even a critical care nurse, um, a pediatric nurse, um, you know, people that were in, in the wellness uh, uh, and cancer support groups, even they hadn't talked to about the emotional side of it. So those were the two common themes. And they weren't just the common themes on the 15 people that made the book. They're the common themes on literally every single person mm-hmm. I talked to. The secondary one that wasn't with everybody, but was a lot of people, was some type of dynamic around isolation. Either they didn't know how to talk to their loved ones or they were isolated because, you know, like in one case, uh, one of the uh, book book participants, um, as he's getting wheeled in for surgery to remove a grapefruit-sized sarcoma from his belly where he might die, and he was given virtually 0.0001% chance to live through all the treatments and everything, once his girlfriend heard how serious it was, as he's being wheeled into the surgery, she says, sorry, man, you are on your own. This is not my life. I cannot handle this. I'm out. We want to talk about being isolated. Wow. So it, it, uh, uh, either, you know, what happened to my best friend? They disappeared the second I needed them. Or, mm-hmm. or you know what? I didn't ever want to burden my family with the emotional mm-hmm. side of it. So I never talked about it because I didn't want to burden them. Whatever, the isolation was a not a hundred percent of people, but in a large group of people, it was isolation. And I feel that's because um, we we just are not equipped to talk about the emotional side. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder sometimes too, if it's um, talking about the emotional side is so uncomfortable, like because it faces us with our own mortality, just even of no these doubt. hard things, right? I, I've realized that, not only is there a taboo of talking about grief and when we go through things, but is there's just a taboo around talking about death. So therefore, it it um it, it makes it uh really hard. And I wonder too if things like don't air your dirty laundry, things like this that you know everything stays behind closed doors. Those kind of um what are those called? Uh, well, the trite little sayings or whatever. Yeah, yeah. sayings and ways of upbringing. If that is what makes people not sh- share that much what they're going through sometimes too and their hardships um, because of maybe just how we've been brought up to just kind of keep it all mm-hmm. inside. Um, just curious if you noticed any of well, that or any realizations for yourself with that. You know, it's a great, great couple of points that you make in that question. And, wh- you know, one thing is, is that it's impossible to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you don't know what it is that creates them to be a certain way or not be a certain way, you know, in yourself, why you might be a certain way. If you're reflective, you know, some people live in denial and they're not reflective, but if you're reflective and you're, you're trying to attain, 
you know, some deeper form of grounded, meaningful connections with your loved ones and yourself, then you're going to be reflective and you know what you went through. So maybe you can work on those things, but you don't know what somebody else went through. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like with that guy that I mentioned about being wheeled into the hospital, right. Or being wheeled into surgery and the girlfriend saying, that's it, I'm out of here. Right. Now that would affect, I can understand how that would affect him. Okay. But when I found out later, as I dug deeper and deeper and deeper into his story, when I found out later, the reason that it so affected him was because he was raised in Puerto Rico to be a strong man and be macho and not to worry about the hard stuff that happens to you in life. Because what caused him to move to Puerto Rico was his mom killed herself when he was six. And he was yanked from what he thought was his family, but it was not his family, to his real family in Puerto Rico. So you want to talk about horrible. He walked in, sees his mom dead. She killed herself. He gets yanked out and taken to a different you know, part of the you know, oh, yeah. country. Another, basically, yeah. Technically, basically yeah. Another culture, whole other culture. And, a whole for other sure, culture. Sure. and he, you know, he got, comes to love his family and he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. But when, when, when he gets abandoned or he asks for help, you think how hard it is for him to ask for help. And so I, I, taking a little bit of a walk in his shoes, I can never do that. Neither could the reader. But just to understand that when, when, when you have the chance possibly to be there for somebody, you know how, how hard it might be for you. Imagine how hard it might be for them to ask if they had gone through things like what he had gone through. Okay. So, so that's, that's one thing, you know, that I thought was, was a super important, super important, you know? And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, again, another long rambling answer to your question, but you know, those are, those are some of the things that, that provided the impetus for me to try to bring insight into it. And so when you say these, these little sayings like, Oh, be strong or, Oh, you can get through it or whatever. They don't, it doesn't resonate because I, mm -hmm. I, I don't understand what you mean by that. You yes. Know? Yes. I can, I can relate to that. Um, yeah. Sometimes they're just kind of hallmark kind of statements or I don't know, I just call them that, but just statements that we say, but there's sometimes not even meaning even behind saying it <laughs> sometimes it's just kind of like what we're used to programmed to say Yeah. Uh, when somebody's going through hard times. And, and you said earlier in that in that question, you know, um, about are we a, a taboo to talk about death and that type of stuff? And, you know, like when you think about you, you've heard this statement over and over and over, you know what, my, my life flashed before my eyes. Right mm -hmm. now, that to me is a trite saying. I don't get it. Right. Mm -hmm. But when I was talking to somebody who's in the book. One of the first conversations that I had with her that made sense that her story was important was she said to me, when the doctor told me about my cancer, I had to excuse myself because I needed to go into a room and collapse. And she said a million thoughts and a million memories and a million things. And she explained it a little bit more to me. But all this stuff ran through my brain. She goes, everything from being born to my childhood to my grandma dying to my bad marriage my kids and all everything flew in my a million things a million emotions inside of five minutes and then i realized i had to get up and walk back into the doctor's office and take out my notepad and my pen and say okay what do we need to do mm. and she said 
I could write a book about that five minutes, but but I never will, right? Mm -hmm. And I went, oh my gosh, that's what it means to have your light flash in front of you. you well, know? we were talking even just about our kids and how, like you said before we started recording, that seeing your children now, you still see them as if they're five, and it's that. Like for me, like a big, the biggest reflection of life flashing before my life and seeing life like that is even just my kids that I'm like, wait, I just changed their diapers yesterday. <laughs> right. Literally. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, you know, but it's like, uh, they're already in high school and, you know, so it's, it's, um, this concept of time that all of a sudden just like kind of goes away. And you remember all these little, uh, milestones that they did and 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 you're like wow I can't believe it's been x and y a number yes. of years right um so I'm assuming that that's the only little trace of um relatability I would have to that concept of the flash before my eyes and I say yes. relatability because again I haven't had that type of experience per se but mm -hmm. It is so hard. Now, let me ask you, in that journey then, as you were collecting all these stories, mm -hmm. how did that then help you process your grief of your sister's passing then? Well, so um, I'll try to not give you a super long rambling answer, but- I, I ask deep questions, <laughs> and so therefore I expect- deep rambling answers <laughs> well, that's so the reality I, that's funny no i understand and that's the purpose of this right we want to uh talk about things that maybe your listeners could gain some insight into or maybe be inspired to take some action in or whatever so for me i you know as june was dying her and i had a lot of talk right you're you you, you were on the journey while your mom was dying so you probably mm -hmm. had a chance to reconcile uh, some things maybe not everything but some things you were able mm -hmm. to and so that is the tiny little slice of joy in a horrible, horrible situation is at least you got that time. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I had to have somebody yank from me right away. And, you know, but still, it's, it's, it's a sad thing to, to have somebody that's close to you pass away. But what I didn't do is I didn't grieve the thing that I ended up needing to grieve. And I didn't know what it was until I went on the bike ride. So what I did well, yes, I, tell us. I, that's was going to be my next question. With yeah, my so, so go, go into it. So what I said, Kendra, was if I'm going to connect all these stories, okay, what better way to connect them to get on my bicycle and bike to all the people I've been talking to for a couple of years on the phone and meet them for the first time? I know I met some of them, but most of them I hadn't met in person. So I connected them. So I get on the bike and I start and I start doing my ride. And it's an insanely ridiculous, hardcore you know, 14, 16, 18 hours a day on the bicycle bike ride. You know, I bike 41 out of 45 days and I went nearly 5,000 miles. So if you do the math, it's like 120 miles a day, like solo, hardcore, ridiculous, right? But I, along that ride, I realized that I didn't need to grieve my sister. What I needed to do was grieve the thought that was in my head for some reason, I hadn't come out until that ride that I, I didn't just lose my sister. I lost the only person that knew me as a kid, right? That was in my life because my father died. Unfortunately, my, my mom hasn't uh, talked to me since I was a teenager. Um, she's, she just didn't like being a parent. And the only person that knew me from 
being a kid and the, the crazy childhood that we had um, was my sister. And so mm. nobody's going to know me like, you know, and that's what I needed to grieve was like that. I'm not going to solve these problems. I'm never going to have anybody that understands what it was like, you know? And so everybody has the thing that they grieve, you know, and, and I don't know, maybe I don't want to take an assumption, but maybe what you might grieve over your mom is if you guys were super close and now you don't have that person to talk to anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Or whatever. If your mom was, you know, always the one that was go, go, go. And now you don't have anybody that you can look up to that was go, go, go. I don't know what the issue is, right. That, that you might secondarily need to grieve. But for me, it was that. And so while I was on the bike ride, I was able to kind of process the stories that I had, uh, uh, was ready to write. I had didn't write until I get back. Um, uh, cause I didn't know who was going to make the book and all of that. But, um, uh, but I, I needed to go through that process. And so for me, that's what, that's what I needed to kind of deal with is like, understand that, uh, you know, we're all like thousand piece puzzles and sometimes we're just going to have to deal with the fact that some pieces are going to be missing, you know? Oh, I love that analogy of that. Sometimes we just have to deal with some of the pieces missing. And, uh, and of course you can see me here on video as we're recording and how, uh, my emotions kind of, I can't hide them. And that, that aspect of, of the, the role that your sister played in your life and how you no longer have that one person in mm -hmm. your life that represents that, uh, that, that knows you for, <laughs> for all your life, the, your entirety of your life. Uh, that was really moving. Um, the, the secondary losses that you mention are sometimes the ones that people end up actually having the hardest time grieving over. And mm -hmm. it could be, like you said, the, either the role that they had, or because now that this person is no longer their life, they now have to move somewhere or live with, even if the example of the gentleman that was going to have the major surgery, right? His mom died. And now not only did his mom die, he also had to then be taken away to move to another you know, community, right? Yeah. That's a huge, huge grief there too. Yeah. So um, there's all these stages, uh, not stages, uh, ways in which we can grieve and ways in which it could be reflected after someone dies that are not just about the death. So mm -hmm. thank you for, for sharing that perspective. Mm -hmm. Now in that, in that dry, in that writing then, so tell us a little bit about that bike ride and uh, how it was to meet the different people oh that you gosh. had been talking to over the phone. Yeah. So it was, it was crazy. So, um, it's a pretty big undertaking, right? To take that much time and, and get on your bike. And luckily, um, I had support along the way. So it wasn't like I was on my own the whole time. I was only on my own, maybe 10 days out of the 45, ma oh, okay. maybe eight or 10 days. Um, but I was biking by myself. So, um, uh, so I went basically from LA to San Diego, then through the deserts in, uh, you know, in the Southwest up to New Mexico, down through, te all through Texas. And then the panhandle of Florida turned right, made it down to Tampa. So I could visit, um, a couple of uh, book participants that were in the Tampa area and one of the cancer centers uh, that I wanted to uh, visit, then over to Orlando and North all the way to New York city. Oh, so wow. that's the, that's where you get the 40, 4,700 
or so miles. And it was crazy. I only took four days off in 45 days. And one of them was forced by a hurricane to take off. But it was the first, I think Kendra was like the first 10 or 11 days. The high never got below 100. So it was really hot too because I, oh. I left it on September 1st. And then um, so it was hot. It was windy. It was flat tires all day long. I had to do it on the interstate because I had to get from point A to point B like quick. So you, quick. you can't be taking back roads. So I was on the on the highway, like on the interstate, oh. trucks going by at 80 miles oh an my hour. Gosh. I still have PTSD. Scary. It, it, it's oh. brutal. So it was really, really hard. <laughs> but it was also uh, very good because uh, when you test yourself physically and you make yourself raw, what I wanted to try to do was to process these emotions on my own and also kind of process the emotions behind the stories that I was going to write. And what better way to process it than being in a raw position? So I, I could really draw on the experience, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, uh, you know, to, to do there. So it's kind of like being a, 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 a war correspondent, right? If you're on the ground while you're a war correspondent, man, it's raw, right? And if you're trying to do yeah. it from a control room, you know, mm -hmm. in, in a van on, in some other continent, it's not the same thing. Right. So you started in a control room because you started interviewing in a yep. control room, but then you went into the trenches. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, kind of self-imposed, right? Self-inflicted. Right. It's not. It's yeah. not war. I'm using that as a terrible. No, no, analogy, no. I know, but, but no, yeah. no. It's not. It's. I mean, it, it. It's to be able to have again when you're going through endure. You know, this kind of endurance, and you're putting mm -hmm. your body through something like that. It also makes you, uh, your emotions be more out there too Absolutely. right so therefore you can uh, relate to things probably uh differently because so many different chemicals are released yeah. in our body so plus the thoughts the amount of time you get to think and be with your thoughts when you're on a bike you can't oh. be watching netflix while you're on a, it's so true it's bike. so true and that's kind of why i continue to do endurance athletics and why i was drawn to it is um you know, I was going through a really rough time. I was a smoker. I was overweight. I, I was just full of stress. My kids were four. I was in an abusive relationship and I needed to get out. And the thing that I, I found to help me get out of this mess I created for myself was endurance athletics for that exact reason, because it allowed me to process things and think about it. And, you know, when you are sitting down to watch a movie that's like an escape that doesn't allow you to solve your problems right um which is fine we all need escapes but if you want to go like for a six hour run in the desert you could solve some problems so okay so now going to the fact of then meeting these people so if you had been talking to them how did you find the people you were gonna talk to and interview for your book how did you connect with these people in the first place were they somebody uh told you about them were they referrals were they friends how did you know probably you the same way that you get guests on your on your podcast some are friends some are you're asking your friends who do you know i should be talking to some are like how in the world did we connect and did we get here? I don't know, but let's do it. And then, yeah. uh, you know, I made some cold calls. I cold called um, a bunch of cancer institutes and uh, cancer centers. And I said, Hey, here's a project I'm working on. 
I, I do you have anybody that have interesting stories? I got a, I got several from there. Um, I had a friend, you know, like a fr- friend of a friend at work say, "Oh my gosh, you you got to meet this person." Mm-hmm. And so, um, it was all pretty much by accident. There was only one person that I wanted to talk to that was a friend, right? So, um, so she was a, a, a OBGYN who whose family had escaped the night Saigon fell. So they escaped Vietnam on one of the last three barges that uh, that left the harbor um, in Saigon. And she made it to the States um, through ridiculous amounts of uh, bigotry and and just horrible um, circumstances. She becomes a doctor and she loves being a surgeon, OBGYN, loves uh, giving, you know, helping people give birth, loves, I mean, she sits down, she holds her patient's hands, like she's the greatest thing ever. And she develops tumors on her brain. Mm. And they are, um, they're benign, but they cause so many problems with her physicality that she has to uh, stop being a doctor. Mm. And um, it, drastically changes her life and for a long time the relationship she had with her kids and her husband and uh, hers was the fear of cancer not anything other than that who can't relate to having the fear of cancer Mm -hmm. but um, what I thought was super interesting was that her fear of cancer was enhanced because when she was a little girl growing up in Vietnam anytime anything bad was going to happen her dad would look at her and say, you keep your mouth shut because you talk about this stuff. It's like a cancer. You don't tell anybody about this stuff. It's like cancer. You don't, you don't want to make it bigger than it is. So you keep it inside. And so imagine being told that and having this fear that everything's going to turn into cancer if you talk about it. And then all of a sudden she has these, this fear, this real life fear of cancer and she can't talk to anybody. Because she's afraid wow. to talk about it. Because if she talks about it, it's going to be cancer. Wow. I mean, imagine that. So I was like, like whoa, I got I to gotta talk to her. About, I mean, she was a friend of mine. Uh, and I, I got to talk to her about, about it. So everybody else, um, I just found by asking. But but uh, but yeah. And, and some people, honestly, Kendra, some people I talked to weren't able to talk. Mm. Do you know? Some people weren't able to talk because it's so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah, especially opening up about the emotions. Just like you said, if it's already hard in itself to uh, reach out for help when you're going through something so hard, then to open up for somebody to write about how you felt through that, that's a lot. So for, for the ones that you kind of were able to bridge that you know, <laughs> that, uh, that level there of comfort, what created that space and safe space for them to be able to talk to you about what they were going through and allow their stories to be shared? Uh, great question. I, I say that some of it was timing, mm. like they were ready when I needed them to be ready. So one of the people in the book, um, it's one of the most moving stories you could ever imagine because I always tell people, don't assume that you know what's going on, right? And and I don't mean that from a preachy thing. I mean, like, you can't assume. Mm-hmm. Because imagine I could tell you this, Kendra. 
you got six kids, okay? You ha you have a husband, 25-year marriage, and you go to bed one day and you wake up to your husband telling you at four in the morning, you're going to go into surgery. They're going to remove a grapefruit-sized tumor from your brain. You're most likely going to die. But if you make it through, we'll do everything we can. And imagine you saying to your husband and smiling and saying, thank God. Imagine that. So this is the husband telling the wife, this the is wife what's going to happen to you. You're going into surgery right now. We're going to, they're going to try to remove. And, and, and she smiles at him and says, thank God. Could you imagine that? Like, like, no, no. that's just, no, no. So I first talked to them when she was going through cancer and they were not able to talk to me. Um, a after she died, um, uh, about a year later, the, the, a couple of her sisters and her husband were ready to talk. Mm. And that's, so they called me and they said, hey, or the person that, that introduced us said, I think they want to talk now. And so sometimes it was lucky. The timing of it was lucky. Um, other times, um, um, if they weren't ready to go there, but I thought their stories were interesting enough and needed to be told, I just tried to give them a safe space by, um, by listening, do you know, by like, like, mm -hmm. like, like really explaining what I was trying to do and giving them a safe space to talk. And, um, people, people will talk if they have a safe space to talk. And if you're really actively listening, I mean, you're a very good question asker because you're actively listening. But mm -hmm. if, if, if your brain is somewhere else, I'm going to limit my answer a little bit because it's not safe. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what you need to give to people is a safe place to go. And then the third type was they might have been intrigued and I caught them at the right time because like I have a 40, uh, a lady who is an oncologist for 40 years. Okay. Mm. And her story was fascinating. Okay. F absolutely fascinating. The, the difficulty of becoming a surgeon and the difficulty of becoming an oncologist um, uh, against sexism and uh, um, building a practice when people would say to her, how am I going to refer you clients? You have curly hair. Nobody wants to go to a woman with mm -hmm. curly hair as their doctor. Could you imagine that? I mean, wow. that's the world that she, that she, um, so not only in. sexism, but prejudice of oh, different types. It's yeah. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But her story really relied around or was kind of centered around two things. One, when she was a little girl, her dad abandoned the family never to be heard from again. How's that not going to affect you? Number two is she built this beautiful life for herself. And over a 40-year span of being an oncologist, she became more and more desperate to have her clients listen to her because if they didn't listen to her, they might get sicker, they might even die. And she now understood after being 40 years into it what they might miss out on life. So she was getting more and more desperate. If you're not going to take my advice, get out. Right, because I I need to help you. I, I right. So what a wonderful story. So I asked her. I said, "Hey, Doc, if 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 we can, we need to talk about things you never talked about before." And she goes, "Yeah, that's fine." And I go, "No, no, no, really. Things like you never even talked to your husband about, maybe." She goes, "Yeah, we don't talk about this kind of stuff." 
And I said, well, things you don't talk about your coworkers. And she started laughing. She said, I'm a woman doctor. You think I'm talking about my emotions at work? Hell no. And I said, well, then your friends. She goes, no. And I said, who have you talked to about all this stuff? And she said, nobody. Let's, let's see what we find out. So sometimes it was lucky that people were willing to go where we were willing to go. But, um, you know, I definitely pushed with everybody. It was not easy uh, because when you get really deep down into it, it's not easy, right? Mm -hmm. Especially, you know, with a stranger and all of that. So that's why sometimes I, I didn't uncover the most important nuggets until like a, a year and a half into talking to them. Wow. Okay. So you're talking about time now. Now I'm curious then, how long did it take you to gather then all these stories and then to put publish the book? How long was this process? Because if it's, mm -hmm. if you're kind of going along with them in this ride and easing them into trusting yeah. and, and this, uh, you know, shedding a little bit mm -hmm. of these barriers to be able to share their story. How long was this process? It took a while. It did have one bad um, uh, side effect. And the bad side effect was that if I had caught somebody at a really raw emotional time, then now a year later, um, you know, the stories are ready to be uh, um, uh, edited and processed. And, you know, I got to have review it and, and have them sign off on it. They sometimes were beyond the emotion that happened at the time. Or like one of them, one story was about some issues that created um, um, uh, 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 the main character to be estranged from his kids. Well, in the time that we talked to the time that his story was ready, he had started to mend the relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, you can't talk about this. We can't talk about that. We can't talk mm -hmm. about that because it's going to then potentially estrange me from my kids again. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So, uh, so it wasn't perfect, right? That it took this long, but it was about uh, two years of talking to people. And then about a year of, you know, month and a half of the bike ride. And then about a year of, of writing, um, the stories. And then my editor totally changed the basis for everything. Um, and I had to rewrite the whole thing. So I'd say from the, first phone call to most of them until I said, Hey, can you sign off on your story? It was probably about four years. I, I like that you're sharing this because a lot of times people do not know, you know, when we're picking up a book, we mm -hmm. do not know all the time that it's taken someone to get that. So four years for what you've done is actually in the big scheme of things is not that long of a time for what you were right. able to accomplish. Uh, some years take, some books take much longer than, yep. than that. Right. So that's a very, very impressive. And also I'm assuming that being an endurance athlete, that you're so patient and you know that it's for the long haul, you're not like a short, <laughs> a short distance runner. You're an, you're yeah. an endurance athlete that, that preparation I'm sure made a big part of you taking your time also with this. I, I can see that dynamic fitting into your um your book writing as you yeah. an, as an athlete yeah also um there was another facet to it right that also was that played a big part and that was that 
Um, could you imagine if I asked you to be a part of this project and I said, hey, Kendra, talk to me about all the crazy stuff that happened in your life prior to when you uh, found out about your mom and then let's talk about your mom and blah, 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 blah. And imagine that I say to you, okay, then I'm going to now send you your story <laughs> and I want you to read it. That's a lot of pressure, man. It's a lot of pressure. And so I I was really, really driven to make sure that I did the most accurate and in best light. Like there was one story and I won't tell you which story. I don't want to give any details on it, but I. <laughs> I know because I haven't read them yet. <laughs> I know, but I felt like you you could ask my wife. I, I was having such a hard time with it because every time I wrote her story, I made her sound pitiful. Oh. And I did not want her to have pity thrown on her but you mm. couldn't help but feel pity for her pity mm. like full-on like 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 oh i just feel so bad for her right but she didn't feel bad for her in a lot of ways and so how could i write her story without it being sounding pitiful and and without her sounding pitiful so i had to write and rewrite and write and rewrite and rewrite and oh my god it was terrible and when i sent it to her I'm just like, oh my God, what's going to happen when she sees this thing? And she sent me back a thing and she said, you know, a couple of things aren't exactly accurate, but I like what you did. It's good. And I went, ah, oh, whatever, leave. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and a writer, anybody out there that's a writer will identify with this. I'm like, so I, I, I talked to them for two years. I write it for a year. I edit back and forth with my editor for a year. And then I press send, like, right? Like I press send on the story. And like five minutes later, I'm in my wife's office. I'm going, man, they hate me. They didn't, they didn't read it yet. They didn't answer. And she's like, you just sent it five minutes ago. And I'm like, oh, but they hate me. How, who's not going to read their own story in five minutes? I mean, come on, man. And she's like, just relax. So a couple of the people didn't have an immediate love, but, but uh, a couple of them did. And, and we worked it out with everybody. So it was, it was That's cool. Wonderful. That's awesome. And now are all of these characters, is everybody in the story, is, are their names revealed or are some chose to be anonymous? Uh, great question. Only two. Only two chose to be anonymous. Okay. And one um, was because uh, they didn't want their kids to have to go through the emotional pain of watching their mom die again, mm -hmm. um, which is completely, totally understandable. And part of that story was um, one of the kids had found um, his 18-month-old um, baby sister dead in the crib. Mm. Very emotional, unbelievable emotional. And he didn't want to have to put his kids through that again. Mm -hmm. So he said to me, could we please go anonymous? Mm -hmm. And then the other one was the person who I mentioned just before who, who needed to go anonymous because, uh, and I had to change a lot of details, uh, um, facts and figures, not emotions and not the, not the crux of the story, but just the, the so nobody could figure out who it was because it was a very public figure. So I had to change the, and I was Dynamics, hoping that they yeah. would stay. The setting, everything. Yeah. Yeah. That kind because, of stuff, yeah. you know, if I gave a, a, this clue, you know who the person is. So I had, I had to make it anonymous, but the other 13, they are who they are, real names, real numbers, real, real everything. Oh, 
What what an amazing uh, journey and the feat that you accomplished by doing this, and what an incredible honor, uh, a way of honoring your sister as well in this mm -hmm. journey. Um, so yeah, thank you and thank you. I think so. It's definitely a way of honoring by because it, by her passing away was what intrigued you to then find out mm -hmm. more of these stories. And um, I think that anytime we do something in life in memory of somebody. Uh, in some way or another, I feel that it's a way of honoring their life as well. It's uh, nice. It's, it does keep a little energy, right? <laughs> I mean, that's maybe yeah. what you're doing a little bit with your mom, right? Is that it's maybe just this little bit of energy that you're putting out there yes. that just keeps them that much closer or just makes it so they're not forgotten, you know, which that's, is nice. That. Nice. Yeah, I think that that's a, a, a right, the right word, like a legacy kind of continuing on mm -hmm. somehow, right, with, with that. Um, now, is there anything else you'd like to share before we close off and that you tell us how people can get Cycles of Life and, mm -hmm. um, and how they can reach you? Sure. So um, and thank you for that. The 100% the, the, um, of the proceeds are going to the charities. Oh, good point. Yes, yeah, that's so, part of it. I forgot to. Yes, so yeah, it, so super um, important. I asked each of the book participants that I worked with. Um, I said, um, "Can you do me a favor and choose an organization that you feel an affinity towards?" So it's places like Children's Hospital LA, the Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida, um, that oncologist I was talking about. Uh, she's at the Perlmutter uh, Cancer Institute in New York, and other. Uh, and so I said, just. You know, we're not going to raise a lot of money. There's not a lot of money in books, but whatever we do raise, 100% of it will go to split up between these different organizations. So that's a good thing, right? That, that's mm. a feel good. So if anybody wants to buy the book, they could go to um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever, where they buy books. Um, if they want a signed copy, they could go to my website. It's cycleoflives.org, or they can look me up, David Richmond, uh, uh, and and you know, find out about that book and other books and, and, uh, yeah, maybe, um, you know what, if you just want to be, um, better, um, like exposed to what people have gone through, then maybe you can maybe hopefully use that to relate to the people in your lives and form, you know, deeper, more meaningful connections. You know, David, it's actually something that a lot of people reach out to me about, and maybe this happens to you too. It's like, what do I say? Like they reach out, like I have so-and-so, you know, they just lost, you know, a spouse. What do I say? What I, that's one of the most common calls I get from friends is like, what do I do? What do I say? And it's exactly because of what you just said of being able to find how can you relate and reading books like this that share real stories and these journeys help us have that little bit of relatability when somebody's going through something. So thank you. Thank you yeah. for pointing that out and for sharing that. Sure. You're welcome. And I'll give your, I'll give your listeners uh, uh, this, the answer to the question. You ready for this one? I don't yeah. do this very often, but I'm going to give them the answer to the question. Um, just ask an open-ended question. Just do that. Instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about your loss. Or I'm sorry to hear that. Or, oh my gosh, you know, that's terrible. Just ask an open-ended question. Like, for example, oh, your, um, oh, your mom died of pancreas. Oh, what was she like? Or, mm. oh my God, were you close? Or, oh my gosh, how old was she? 
right? So anything that would be an open-ended question, which basically says, ah, you could tell me more if you want to, you don't have to, but you could tell me more if you want to, because whatever. And usually that open-ended question will be the beginning of you having the safe space to be able to talk to each other, because I don't gain anything from, I'm sorry for your loss. But every once in a while, when somebody says, oh, wow, so were you and your sister always close or what? Or, oh, what was she like? Or, oh, my gosh, you know, how is that for her family? Or so, mm-hmm. It's always an opening to talk, right? Instead That's awesome. of, and you, and yeah. it's wonderful because a lot of us do really love to talk about our loved ones. Because <laughs> back again to what we were saying, it's like yeah. we want to keep their memory alive. So yeah. it, by asking that, you know if that person's ready to open up as well. Um, and mm-hmm. with depending on the question, that's an amazing tip. So thank you. Thank you for sure. that tip. Thank you for your time. And thank you again for writing Cycle cycles of lives i'm like i'm saying it and i always mess up with how i say things partly because of my spanish i always blame it on my spanish cycle of lives am i saying it right now cycle of lives exactly cycle so, yes, of lives plural with the lives instead yes. of a life yes yeah, thank yeah. you once again david oh, you're very welcome kendra thank you Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, If you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.